And welcome back to the JKR Podcast. Today is April 12th, and it is the seventh episode of this season. My name is Jace Wrigling. I'm going to be the host. We're going to interview Nick Carey today. He is a big baseball enthusiast, a minor league baseball executive. He currently got a new job with the Wilmington Sharks, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, talk a little bit about his career so far, and a little bit about the odd jobs he's done, some TV blackout stuff. So I'm looking forward to a great conversation, and we'll get into it right after a word from our sponsor. All right, Nick Carey, former minor league baseball general manager, assistant general manager right now for the Wilmington Sharks. How are you doing today? Hey, doing well. Uh, glad to be on with you. And um, yeah, it's, it's in a transition period in my career, but I'm um, always glad to come on and, and tell my story, offer advice and uh, let people know what I'm what I'm up to. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on. Of course, yeah. Welcome to the show. I appreciate you coming on. But let's just start a little bit by you telling us um, who you are and what you do. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, across my baseball career, it's it's been a variety of things. But um, yeah, I grew up in a small town in Missouri. My family was in Tennessee. I went to school at Middle Tennessee State University and graduated with a degree in journalism from there and uh, a pair of minors, uh, one in history, one in business management. And then um, while a student, I worked for the, the baseball team there and then transitioned that to a couple internships, one in collegiate summer baseball before I graduated, and then one with the former Houston Astros rookie affiliate in uh, Greenville, Tennessee, after I graduated and had um, formed the, the foundation for a career enough that by age 22 at um, I was ready and, and it was hired to become a general manager for a rookie level team in Princeton, West Virginia. And that was my first full-time job. So I, I got to be pretty much a, a one-man front office and um, run a team on, on five months notice. But uh, aside from that, it, it's it's been a little bit of everything. Like I said, uh, I've worked as a journalist. I've been a reporter. I've um done a little content creation in terms of web content on YouTube. I have always dabbled in sports branding and personal branding. And um, yeah, I I guess when I learned the term early on in in high school renaissance man, that's what I kind of aimed to do. I wanted to be creative, but also be successful in business and uh, everything else that I could be that I put my mind to. Yeah. So you said your major, one of your majors was history. It was uh, I double minored in history and business management, and then my okay. degree was in journalism. So okay, so how does history tie into your career in baseball? Um, it, it's the American pastime. I yeah, I can I can put it actually to the first real uh, profit producing promotional night that I did when I was an intern in in 2014 with the Sedalia Bombers in the Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas League, which is a mouthful. I guess that's why they call it the Mink League. But I had seen where minor league teams did specialty jerseys or they rebranded for a night. So I said, let's look into the history of baseball in this little community in Missouri and looked back and found a local – 
museum where they had a picture of this old railroad shop workers team uh, in town and had their full uniforms. So I went to the general manager slash owner slash field manager at that time. And I said, Hey, if I can put like a, a auction to do the one night Jersey or one night dry fit shirt off the player's backs, would you do that? And he said, as long as it makes money for us, then yeah, I'm, I'm good with it. So, um, it was that interest in in history, that reverence for history in uh, in a game like baseball that that led to that. And I put initial design work together and put it out to a couple local screen printers. We got a good bid, and then turned around, got player numbers, put had that particular uh, screen printer embroiderer put their logo on the back and be the sponsor for that night, as well as creating that and giving us a deal and. So we auction them off the players back, but uh, history is just, it's a personal interest, but it also allows you to, to figure out where things were. So where they can go forward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I mean, I always love like, so my local team is the Fort Wayne Tin Caps and they do that once or twice a year. And it's always cool to see that raising money for either a business or a certain uh, nonprofit organization. But yeah, that's, that's super cool. But uh, let's talk about your, like your start, in baseball. So what was your first job in sports? Was that uh, working as a manager for the middle tennis for middle Tennessee, or was that somewhere else? Really? If you, if you get down to it, <laughs> my first job in sports was probably working or volunteering as a public address announcer when I was in high school for the local youth football league. Okay. I, I had a, had a friend and his dad was, part of the organization that sponsored the entire youth football league for the the town I grew up in, in Missouri. And we were messing around after a Sunday football practice or a Sunday morning film session, whatever it was. And they played, the little league was playing at the high school stadium and I grabbed a microphone. It wasn't on, but said, i I just started mimicking PA announcers and uh, the the lady who, who was running the logistics of, of games uh, for the league itself said, no, if you want to, these kids have never had that. If you want to do some public address announcing, I can get some rosters and things like that. And that's where it started. Uh, then they invited me back the next Sunday. They invited me back the Sunday after that. So uh, that was when I was a sophomore in high school. And then that led to working, doing some PA and baseball scorekeeping the next summer. And it snowballed from there. I'd always been a baseball fan, but realized around that early high school time, freshman, sophomore year, that there was a business behind the on-field product. And I started looking at what the people off the field involved with the team were doing. And that's what drew me to the sports industry and sports management and this now booming industry uh, with sports management programs and colleges across the country and master's programs. So uh, that was technically my first job in sports. And since then I've done everything under the sun from being a mascot to learning how to prep game mounts for division one college football games to doing that for professional baseball games and um, 
doing creative and branding work, managing websites, managing social media accounts. And in my spare time, you know, creating my own fictional baseball leagues and brandings and rosters and things to, to fill my time and uh, continuing to learn and, and grow as, as I've done it. So yeah, it started out grabbing a PA mic and, and it's come to this. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great story. Like oh, that's a great way to like, just put yourself out there as a young kid, like 15, 16 years old in high school. But um, so you said you were a mascot as well. Yeah, I've I've been a mascot oh, off the top of my head, probably six different mascots across my my career in sports. Uh, it's it's one of those things like pulling tarp in baseball is one of the necessary evils that nobody in baseball really likes to do. Uh, it's just a tough job. It's a dirty job, but I've always really enjoyed putting on a mascot suit because. I mean, you might find a former Disney cast member who's done that, or you might find um, somebody else in in baseball or any other sports industry or sport in the industry that have been a mascot. And you find yourself when it's an unconscious thing as a human, when somebody's pointing a camera at you with somebody else, you are smiling. You can have this giant mascot head on and you're still smiling for a picture for somebody. So, um I've had babies handed to me out of nowhere to hold and take a picture of. And I'm like, please just don't drop the baby with the (laughs) furry three finger gloves. Um, And then I've had adults who or yeah, adult fans who their game night as a season ticket holder isn't made until they've seen the mascot that game. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. They, they, it's like seeing, their best friend at the ballpark or seeing a long lost friend at the ballpark every time they come. So, um, yeah, I've done it over half a dozen times now and, uh, in various capacities and I enjoy it. Um, it's a little like being a pantomime doing a pantomime or being a mime. And, um, you have to kind of put your physical acting chops to the test as a mascot as well. Yeah. So were you ever a mascot while you were like an active general manager for the team or an active in the front office? Yeah. I mean, um, I didn't do it as a general manager. Princeton, West Virginia has probably one of the coolest mascots ever because his name is Roscoe. He's a rooster. He was created for the Cincinnati Reds when they were the original affiliate of the team. And he just stayed a rooster through the time where they were the Rays. And now they are, they released their new branding last week. They're the whistle pigs, I think. But uh, Roscoe is the only mascot I had ever seen that spoke. Um, He is a big dude and he pro wrestles in the suit as well um, in, in amateur wrestling events. So he is the most unique mascot ever and i was so fortunate as kind of a one-man show as a general manager at that young an age that i didn't have to be the mascot he handled his own appearances he did his own booking and he had been around the team for a long time so he knew how things ran and he was a great person just to bounce ideas off of but um no i've i've had days where i have had to jump in a mascot costume at 5:30 in the morning and be the mascot sitting on a local news show or a local early morning news report 
And I have had to jump in to be a mascot for festivals. I've had to jump in and um, do kids days, which in minor league baseball, having thousands of people in the ballpark is enough to handle having thousands of elementary school kids in the ballpark and being dressed as a fuzzy orange alien that they all want an autograph from is the most fun, hectic, stressful, but rewarding thing ever. So um, yeah, it's just one of those extra duties that's never really put on a job description, but it, it falls under those other duties as assigned. Yeah. Like that's not even one thing that I would even picture like a front office guy doing. I mean, that's, (laughs) <laughs> this is some well, good stories no it's but, uh, so what go ahead oh it, it's just it put out there um sometimes teams will hire they'll hire high school kids who are willing to do it but sometimes a full-time staffer's got to do it uh, especially if game day staff aren't on the clock yet so to speak so uh yeah i got got an email one time, uh, I guess when I was working in with a single A team in 2017, they said we have a event coming in early to the ballpark. We're opening the gates just for their group, but they want both mascots there. So could you go be a mascot for like half an hour in one costume and then switch off, take a break and be the mascot in the other costume until our regular game day cat guy comes and he can do it for the rest of the game and i was like all right yeah great i'm gonna sleep all the night but yeah definitely so uh what were some of those uh, like you said you created like your own fictional leagues like what was that like what got you into doing that um actually it was it started with mimicking other brands um i started drawing i would guess seventh, eighth grade, I started just freehand drawing football helmets. And I was like, all right, can I draw the Atlanta Falcons logo? Can I draw the, at that point, the Rams were still in St. Louis. So they were relatively local to where I was growing up. But I was like, the Rams have this awesome helmet. I wonder if I can freehand draw this. And then it spiraled into, well, their logo would look cooler if it looked like this. And I started yeah. sketching that out. Uh, then it went to hey, I'm into hockey at this point in my life. What if I designed a hockey sweater for my high school, even though we have no hockey here? And that spiraled into, okay, this city's not that far away. What if they had a hockey team? What would their brand be? What would their mascot be? And creating whole brands that way. And then I mean, I did a pro football league. I did a pro hockey league. I dabbled a little bit in basketball, but actually creating the logos and rosters and schedules, um, kind of escaping into the the fantasy world of that. And around my freshman year of high school, I was really getting back into baseball. I had grown up going to minor league games and, and Kansas City Royals games, but I was getting into the idea of of playing in the business, like I said, observing how minor league teams had run and going to games. And then I just decided one day I'll create my own fictional baseball league made up of fictional towns. And then I'll make these rosters of players who um, might be influenced by major league guys. They may be influenced by this double a player that I saw last summer that I really liked. If he had 
cool swagger on the field or if I liked him because he was a Dustin Pedroia type because he was a small body second baseman with a lot of pop and, and could grind it out. But um, that it, I'm 27, I'll be 28 in June and I still do that in my spare time. Um, I really, it's, and I've put it out on my website, uh, my personal website, just to show people this is what I've done for years for fun. And I thought I was alone in doing that for a long time. And then I read the book, uh, the outsiders baseball league. And there's a mention in there of Jack Kerouac, the famous American writer. That's what he did. He would create his own major leagues and they would be named after car brands. And he, created these composite baseball players in his league and uh, he wanted to be a sports writer. So he created these leagues and then he'd write post-game write-ups for games that never happened except in his head. Uh, I had been doing that and then I learned that probably two or three years ago and I thought, all right, well, if this extremely influential American writer in, in the 20th century was doing this in his spare time, maybe there is something to it as as a creative outlet and I can't count how many times I've been in interviews and I mentioned that and they say, so you design logos. I said, yeah, I've designed logos. I have the graphic arts just to put a logo down digitally and then have somebody refine it. And they said, so what else have you done with this? And I was like, well, I've learned how to price travel for teams. I've learned how to handle rosters. I've learned how to, uh, basically create a pay structure on a budget um, and really invested in, in personal projects like that. And, um, it's not only a creative outlet, but it was my way of retooling what I didn't get as a sports management student, if I had been one, into some practical experience. Uh, and then create having a creative outlet of learning how to design my own uniforms online or learning how to get travel quotes, like I said, and, and create teams and brands themselves. Yeah, I, that's really cool. Like, I actually, like, I didn't notice more people did that. Actually, I didn't do that type of stuff. But when I was a little kid and I would play 2K, the show, Madden, I would come up with these fictional players, like different types of swag, like you would say, like different types of personalities on the field. And I would, I would actually pretend that they were my clients. And I would, like, come up with like these uh, mock mock branding, mock endorsements for them. Like I always thought I was kind of weird for doing that, but I didn't realize more people did that than what I thought. No, no, it, it's perfectly normal. And uh, another podcast I listened to uh, front office features. It It's two guys basically from Fenway sports group. Uh, one is the, vice president of sales. The other one is the vice president marketing and sales for the now Wooster Red Sox, the Woo Sox, but they have this podcast geared toward people getting into the sports industry. And uh, I've, I've been a listener since I found it and it's on my constant podcast rotation, but there are, there are guys out there doing mock arbitration proposals, uh, how they would argue player arbitration and things. And that it's given them jobs because they've been able, when they've gone into an agency setting or an interview setting to say, here's a five to 10 page brief on how I would handle this arbitration. So 
uh, yeah, it's, it's combining the passion with the creativity to, to move forward and do that. And, uh, before I did, I wanted to be in sports or I wanted to be in journalism. So I also, um, at one point wanted to coach like my, my dad had coached football. So I would put on a headset playing, uh, playing whatever I was playing and, and try to work it out in my head like I was an offensive coordinator as well. Um, it looked kind of goofy if anybody had walked in with a, yeah. a an old an old headset on um, coordinating players that were you know already digitally rendered to do whatever they were supposed to do. But yeah. no, it's uh, it's not you know, people called. Um, People called innovators crazy. People called guys like um, I've recently come around to the story of of Burt Monroe, the the guy from New Zealand who basically built his own record breaking Indian motorcycle and put everything he could into it and learned machine work and learned how to make his own pistons and make his own body frame. And they did a movie about him. 2004 or five with Anthony Hopkins called the fastest Indian, but people just thought he was crazy, but he invested in himself and his idea so much that his creativity and his passion for it set him, led him to set like three world records that, that still stand for, for land speed in this motorcycle that he basically taught himself to build by hand and, and did it. So. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's just so incredible what some people are able to do just through their uh, creativity and just doing stuff on their own through their own uh, power and will. But um, so let's get back into like a little bit of like your career, like places you've been and what types of things you've done. Um, so you was your first your first experience in professional baseball. Was that in Sedalia? No, that was um, college summer baseball. The first. Yeah, my first job was as an operations intern with the then Greenville Astros and. Then they became the Greenville Reds after I left, and now they are the Greenville Flyboys in the the revamped Appalachian League. But um, I went in there as as an operations guy. I went in ready to to basically fix uh, fix light fixtures and and sweep up the concourse and scrape gum off the concourse. And uh, my journalism degree and media relations background there led the assistant general manager to let me create the game notes that we put in the program each game or we put in the press box and also write post-game recaps, learn how to do at that time uh, before minor league baseball switched their web management platforms, but learn how to post my own stories. And I also jumped in and did ticketing, uh, the cool experience there. You never know who you're going to have to go to the airport to pick up. Uh, and I've told this story in multiple ways. I've put it on my LinkedIn before, but I've put it on my my personal website and blog last season going through that that odd 2020 MLB season. But um, I got a, got a call to go to the airport and pick a guy coming up, and he came right off the plane from Mexico. He had just been signed. At that point, his name was Jose Hernandez. And on the way back to town, it was about a 45 minute to an hour drive from the airport. I got a text from our general manager who said, you have to take him to the social security office before it closes in town because he just got signed. He was in Mexico this morning. 
the Astros just sign him, put him on a plane. We've got to start his basically visa and citizenship process. So take him. It's such a stressful experience because they're an hour from closing and now they're processing somebody who's basically starting their U.S. citizenship. And we were very fortunate that the, the regional Spanish translator was there that day, got the process started. And then he pitches like the next night he's lights out. Uh, I, then I, Watch the transactions. You get to the postseason a couple of years ago, and here's a guy that I recognize. And I'm like, all right, cool. We had we had Kyle Tucker on that team, but he was kind of destined to be a major leaguer. We didn't know about this lights out pitcher from Mexico whose name was Jose Hernandez. Yeah. Now his name is Jose Arquiti, and he's pitching in the World Series. And I helped him start getting a social security card a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you never know who you're going to pick up on an airport run. And then, I mean, I did everything in that role uh, up to up to stepping in and just trying to diversify my portfolio and asking the AGM, hey, if we have a slow Tuesday night, can I get on and broadcast three innings just to say that I've done it? And I got the go ahead. And so I've I've been a broadcaster, too. Uh, and that led. Yeah, that led to the postseason where we the team was in as a wild card and played a lot of road games. And I learned how to pick up the broadcast setup and I got to broadcast a championship series on the road and uh, got a got a minor league championship ring as an interim. But it was a great initial experience coming off of three years working in college baseball that was really focused more towards grounds and operations. and that's what set me up to become a general manager the very next year at 22. And where, where were you general manager at? They were at that time, they were the Princeton Rays and uh, now the Princeton whistle pigs, but I, yeah, stepped in. I was hired in January and the season started in late June. So I had that much time and my successor had been there for, almost 20 years. So there was a lot of things to update. Uh, the team was still kind of running like it was in the nineties. So I was like, we got to convert some things to spreadsheets and, uh, there was no true owner for the team. So I was answering to a whole board of directors and there was a lot of ideas coming my way, but I still had to prepare for a season and make sure that the Tampa Bay Rays players there were taken care of, uh, and pretty much run it with a groundskeeper and and director of stadium ops who part of the time was working for the the local high school and our shared athletic complex. And so, yeah, I took all that experience that I had developed personally and then strove for professionally for, for a long time at that point, seven or eight years. And, uh, yeah, ran a team at 22, turned 23 right before the season started. And that team made the playoffs as well. But that's where I learned how to handle, you know, the clubhouse personalities, how to work yeah. with a manager and work with coaches. Um, I had a great time. I really probably would have stayed in the market if uh, things had looked a little better for the team reaffiliating. Eventually they did. 
and I had already accepted another opportunity to to go and be director of corporate partnerships for another team. But yeah, it was the most stressful 11 months of my life. But for all of the stress, all of the anxiety, everything else, it it still formed my career because there at that point were only 160 general managers in minor league baseball. And I was the youngest. I was probably the least experienced in terms of full-time employment in baseball at that point. And eventually it led to that a team that was in question of having an affiliate, having them for another two years until things shook out in the, in the past year or two with the restructuring of minor league baseball. Yeah. So have you, so in all your jobs in the past, you've worked for Greenville, Princeton, Sedalia, Burlington, now Wilmington. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few, but have you had the chance to do some hiring? Yeah, I've, I've really taken pride in, in just the experience of being able to interview people, to interview interns, bring interns on. And then even when I wasn't part of the hiring process, form those relationships and try to guide the rest of their careers. Uh, My career was an interesting case study because I went from intern to general manager to director of corporate partnerships to being out of baseball and basically consulting with another college summer team to getting back into baseball and not hiring interns my first year in Burlington, Iowa, but being the hiring manager before 2020 and forming those relationships and then not having a season. Um, But it's always been a point of pride for me to be able to speak to people who want to network and who want to get into the industry and who are taking the same measures that I did to gain full-time employment in not just baseball exclusively, but the sports industry as a whole. Yeah. So like when you were hiring, what were some of like the key things you looked for in each prospective employee or the person you were interviewing? Uh, I, I guess I've always felt like I was a great interview. I may not have always gotten the job, but I, and maybe it was mostly it was my journalism experience and wanting to be well-researched and knowledgeable going into an experience and an internship opportunity, always being well-researched. Okay. If and then, yeah, if somebody's coming into to an industry or somebody's established into an industry, they more than likely have a LinkedIn. They have a personal social media. They have a bio on their team website. Those are all good sources. You may not use all that info that you gather for the interview itself, but it doesn't hurt. You no, know, going in knowing that if you're interviewing with a general manager but they went to the Ohio State University. So if you're interviewing in the fall, you can say, hey, how do you think the Buckeyes are going to do this weekend? Yeah. Uh, but it's also saying, hey, I saw that you, and it's true with my my new role with Wilmington, my general manager going into this role previously worked with the first guy who hired me in professional baseball. So they had that crossover. And I was able to say, Hey, I, you guys have worked together and 
you know, what was your experience under our previous, you know, colleague or previous hiring manager and building a relationship from there. So on top of being researched, that leads to, or well-researched, that leads to you being knowledgeable. It shows that you're, you're passionate about not only what you're interviewing for, but who you're interviewing with and who you're reaching out to. And that doesn't even have to be in an interview setting. It can be just doing an informal reach out. And that leads into communication skills. Uh, You have to be able to communicate with people. You have to be able to, you don't have to, like I said, write the great American novel or be the greatest email content creator, but you have to be thorough and well-spoken because that can come through written. It can come through in oral communication. And there may be a time like I had picking up Jose Arquiti from the airport where I'm not a strong Spanish speaker, but I was able to find a way to communicate with him for that two, three hours that we were together and bridge that language gap. That's the good thing about going into a lot of interviews. You're not bridging a language gap, but if you're well-spoken, well-researched, show yourself to be passionate and intelligible, then it opens, opens a gateway for you in an interview or in an informal discussion with somebody whose job you are trying to emulate or trying to have in the future. So it's, it's all those things, but also having a spark of creativity. Uh, I have a, a, a digital highlight reel, I guess, a digital resume that says, this is what I've achieved. It takes all my resume information in two minutes or less, puts it in basically a slideshow with my voiceover, but my voiceover isn't saying, well, I did this job and these were my duties. It said, this is where I've been successful. Yeah. This is where I've been creative. This is where things that I've done have worked out well. So it's those things. Yeah. It's um, being well-researched, being able to communicate, being creative and doing it and, and relationship building. Yeah. Um, so you said, what, what was that thing you, you said where it was the voiceover? When did you start that? And how did, how did you get that to work? I uh, have multimedia experience in, in various, well, various ways, various realms, but I just put a slideshow presentation together in uh, Canva, the free yeah. app. And yeah. I, yeah, took a, took some background and, treated it like a there's a I guess there's a video setting there where you can create a slide to slide video so that's what I did Um, and it's free it's available to to anybody all my design work is on Canva that's mainly because I'm probably a little tight with my money I'm I'm, I self-budget quite a bit so uh, but I also don't have a daily need for the Adobe design suite. So I can use a free app like Canva that allows me to do things like that and um, create a way for, for me to stand out in not just in job hunting, but for people who want to come to me for interviews or, or have uh, some 
credible knowledge of me before coming into an interview setting or a business meeting. But yeah, just took a Canva video template and or a blank template and uh, put it together with the pictures and bio information and my goals, my skills, my attributes on the job, my on-job experience and recorded a little voiceover to it on my on my phone and then had it synced up and put it into the video itself. So it was about a two day process because I'm, I'm a perfectionist. So I was wanting to make sure that my voiceover would sync up with the actual video slide and things like that. But um, yeah, and there are a surprising number of employers now who are looking at digital content like that. Yeah will make you because we're the pandemic has forced everybody to to be able to connect digitally and virtually so there are a lot of instances now where companies are asking for a two to three minute summary of your career or to answer some preliminary interview questions in a video and send it to them and they expect people to be able to do that and not have their their iPhone or uh, whatever they're recording on standing with standing vertically and having you know the black bars on yeah, the side yeah, and yeah. horizontally. They want people to have those basic skills because technologically that's the expectation for somebody coming in. Yeah, I feel like that's a, like that's change, that's uh, evolving quite a bit in a lot of industries. So like like you said for hiring. Um, and then for like player branding as well, because I mean, fans just want to like, it, this is going a little off topic, but just like content like that's just flying, uh, just flying high right now. Just uh, players branding themselves like that is just all a bunch of video content, lots of just digital stuff, like you said. But um, let's talk a little bit about your time with the Burlington Bees. So you said you just left that team. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty much on my two week notice time. So transitioning out and, and settling my accounts and turning over my, my sales accounts, clients to um, the other representatives on, on site. But um, yeah, it's been an all encompassing experience too. That's allowed me to use all of my experience in baseball at various levels to um, make an impact. And it's also been, a learning experience because I run the team's Twitter account and that's the first time I've really done it dedicatedly. Uh, as a general manager, I was so busy as a one man show yeah. pretty much that I couldn't produce great web or social media content. But since taking over and I think I put it in a LinkedIn post a couple, couple months ago, since taking over the Twitter account, when I started in, February of 2019, the follower ratio has jumped 25%. And there it's a steady trickle, but I've also I get to pat myself on the back because prior to this total cancellation of last season, I took our old logo, which gets requested all the time for the team to bring it back for hats and uh, merchandise, I took our old logo and said, just put a post together that said, 
yeah, we're looking back and we're challenging other teams to look back on their favorite throwback logo. And it was just putting a picture there and a challenge to every other team in minor league baseball. And it became such a big deal as a response to that one tweet that minorleaguebaseball.com wrote a whole article on it, how teams had been challenged on social media to shout out their biggest throwback logo that their fans love and their front offices love. And it created a bunch of traffic for us. So uh, that's, that was the first thing, first time that I guess I can say I've been part of something going relatively viral on a small scale. Yeah. um, Being able to do that when prior to, very few people had heard of the Burlington Bees in the Midwest League in a city of twenty-five to thirty thousand in southeast Iowa. So, um, yeah, it's been a great experience. Really, when people come to the game, it's a throwback experience because I grew up going to minor league baseball games in the '90s. That post Bull Durham heyday of fan experience. Yeah, and Burlington still like that. I mean. There are all those nuances of modern baseball. There are player walk-ups and you know, there's hip-hop or rap music or Latino beat music, but people still come in and they can buy a hot dog and a drink for like five or six bucks. They can pay $8 and sit in general admission bleacher seats. And people love that nostalgic experience too. Yeah. So that's been great to work around. Um, even having worked in minor league baseball, I've been to ballparks where I've said, this is double or triple A, but I know their market may be this size. This is kind of pricey. Uh, yeah. might be isolating the crowd that you've drawn in the past because people go to minor league games because they like the experience, but they also don't want to pay major league prices either. Yeah. So. Burlington's always had that advantage and uh, it's going to be a great operation going ahead. Having made the transition from affiliated baseball to college summer baseball, they've got a lot of things ahead. And I think the operations, if anything, without some of the limitations that minor league baseball put on as, you know, an umbrella of sorts, I think the operations are going to, going to skyrocket and, um, the experience if anything is going to improve as well. Yeah. Like that was, that was actually my next question about the reorganization of uh, the minor league system. But like, what was that process like from the first time you heard, Oh, the MLB is considering keeping the Burlington bees, uh, the minor league system. Just like from the first time you heard it to when it became official this past off season. That was for me, it actually wasn't that much of a shock. Um, because I had I had kind of faced the threat of losing an affiliate uh, in Princeton, just based on timing and and major league teams have the ability to look at other minor league markets if they'd like yeah. to go through or not. That's their that's their right when their professional development contract runs out. But the community completely rallied around it. There were two basic reactions. There was outright utter shock and kind of a doom and gloom view of, Oh my God, they're already taking the team from us. And then there were people who said, all right, 
do we need to write Senator Chuck Grassley? Do you have an address that we can physically write letters to support this team? Uh, it it was, yeah, shocking to most, and it rallied the community a lot. Uh, overheard today, the, the former general manager, who was with the team for over 15 years as well, said, this summer, I think people are going to come out in droves. And he said this when he stopped in the office this afternoon, because they want baseball back, but I think they're going to come back here and realize this is what they've taken for granted. This is what they almost lost. But even if it's a different level of baseball, they're going to come out and they're probably going to continue to rally and appreciate the product that they have at community field every summer. Yeah. So the response was, was great for the most part. And people supported the drive through food pickups that we did throughout the summer. Uh, we had great crowds for socially distanced high school baseball games for the local Catholic and, and local public schools here. And really it was, it was an underlying stress, but we were still able as a small front office to put our heads down and, and prepare as though we were going to be an affiliate of the Los Angeles angels for the duration. Uh, however, restructuring turned out. And yeah. it's not, yeah. Yeah, it's not ideal, but it was also helpful that there were originally 39 other teams in the mix to in, in the same situation. So I think, yeah, a lot of communities have, have responded and rallied and, and very few have completely lost baseball. Others have pivoted and are doing the same thing Burlington is and still going to produce the same experience, just a different level of baseball for people. Yeah. So the, the league that you guys are joining, has that is that a previous league or is this a newly established league? The Prospect League, oh, I wish I could remember off the top of my head how long it has been around, but the league itself is actually made up of teams in cities that have previously had affiliated baseball at one point or another. Uh, the Springfield Sliders, for example, in Springfield, Illinois, their ballpark is huge because it was the home to a affiliated single A team, the Springfield Saltons, before that franchise was sold or moved. And uh, there, Quincy, Illinois, where I, I previously worked and consulted in 2018 for their season, used to be the any number of things, the Quincy Cubs, the Quincy Mets. Uh, it's an old old ballpark and always worth a visit if you're in that, that area of Illinois. But um, the league itself has really grown and continues to expand year over year. And they've really started doing that in the past five years or so. So the prospect league's pretty well established. Uh, a lot of the teams have been, had baseball in their respective cities dating back to the the thirties, forties and fifties, but now they're finding a new niche market because people want baseball. People don't want to drive hundreds of miles to see pro baseball. And really it's, it's made baseball the same as it was in the early 20th century to, to talk about history again, where 
minor league baseball before becoming a structured system of every big league team has five or six affiliates. Now there are all these independent leagues or these partner leagues or college summer leagues. So if anything, by restructuring and reducing the amount of quote unquote affiliated teams, Baseball has opened the market to so many other small towns and markets that may have been semi-pro teams 50 or 60 years ago. But now those fans want to go to the ballpark and they don't want to pay an arm and a leg and they don't want to drive hundreds of miles to do it. So they'll go out and support a local college summer team. So where the prospect league and, and leagues like it are doing a great service to fans and their communities. So, yeah, so what are your overall thoughts on the Major League Baseball's restructuring of the minor league system? It sounds like they're pretty positive. Not necessarily. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, I I grew up wanting to work in a in affiliated minor league baseball. That was my dream was my major league was working in double A baseball uh, from my perspective because I didn't want to work up and work for a major league team. It's always nice to think that if you put in a job application and a big league team calls and offers you a job that you'd probably accept it. But for me, I wanted to work at the double A level because that's the level of the industry. That's the level of the product of the game that I grew up watching and idolized. So that's one side of the coin as a baseball fan. I think kind of cheapens the on-field product or deadens the on-field product because the draft has been cut back. There aren't as many developmental levels in baseball. And this is from a guy who worked at the three lowest levels of baseball between college, summer league, rookie league, single A. And I mean, there are pros and cons to everything and, and the give and take, but, um, as a former employee of an affiliated minor league team, hearing that our team would would be eliminated without an option and there was not much of a contingency plan in place, yeah, that that boils your blood a little bit. That makes yeah. you makes you angry. Yeah, I wasn't the biggest fan of the restructure. No, no, and um, that's why it was so great that our community really rallied around that. And they wanted to write to. And again, national attention. I mean, Bernie Sanders came to Burlington, Iowa to talk about not only as a campaign stop, but to talk about the values of baseball in American communities. So it was cool apolitically just to meet a presidential candidate. But uh, that that showed the the national passionate, uh, maybe Outrage is too strong of a word, but it showed that national reaction. And I was, I've done, I think, what anybody can do, and I've taken the positives from it. And now shifting to another college summer league, that restructuring, I think, really helps. Um, And then I wrote kind of an, I wrote an article and, and put it on my personal website today about kind of a uninformed outlook of the major league baseball season. And 
you go through all this minor league restructuring. A lot of communities are mad at Major League Baseball as an entity with the restructuring that they've done. On top of the fact that there might be some labor strife after this season going into 2022, which there hasn't been a labor strike in baseball since 94. Yeah. It, you've got that clouding over everything as well. So um, you just take the positive with, with the challenge and, and the positives out of the, the more negative um, narrative or more negative outlook on how things could be. Yeah. Later on, like I, I have a, Few, like I have a list of questions for you, and one of the questions coming up was going to be your thoughts on MLB's like kind of proposal of reducing the draft from forty rounds to twenty here in the next few years. But I mean, personally, I'm not a fan. But could you expand a little bit more on the draft? Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, I, I grew up with an old school baseball fan grandfather taking me to games, and we still talk about the game that way. But he says. Things got so diluted when baseball started started expanding every five or six years. And I can definitely see the logic in that. He also, my grandfather in his 70s, also grew up in a in baseball's golden age. He grew up at a time where there were eight teams in every league. There were no divisions. The winner of the American League played the winner of the National League in the World Series. So those guys on the field were the absolute best of the baseball players in the country. Then it's kind of another historical look. You have expansion of baseball in 1962. And then in 1969, it's the biggest expansion at that point where four and more teams are added. But sandwiched right in between is the 1965 draft, the very first one in Major League Baseball history. And before that, teams were independently going out, scouting and signing players and then putting them in their farm systems, which were huge because they had multiple teams in multiple places at multiple levels. Yeah. And now you're taking this huge pool of talent from amateur leagues and amateur development leagues like uh, pro baseball report leagues, the perfect game system, Ripken baseball, travel baseball itself. You're taking this talent pool on top of college baseball and hundreds of thousands of high school baseball programs across the country. And you want to continue to whittle down however many elite athletes are scouted as elite athletes leads you bring into the system while relegating those non-drafted players to quote partner leagues or independent leagues where they may get sick of the pay and spending a lot of their income just to play professional baseball and they may retire early. Uh, You could lose a, I mentioned Dustin Pedroia earlier, a guy who really had to work into the major league roster or Brandon belt with the San Francisco giants, the same way. Um, Mike Piazza guys that, that got their chance because they were low level draftees. They were non-drafted signees and you're reducing those chances, but you may be losing those diamonds in the rough and the talent pool. And I can definitely see from, you know, from your future 
outlook, your future angles as, as a sports agent, having less clients in the pool, not only to support you and your business, but to provide that representation to, it impacts a whole sub industry yeah. in the sports industry. Yeah, so, like uh, a, a guy I'm really close friends with. He's he's a um, college baseball player right now who I believe has a good shot at playing professional baseball somewhere. That's one thing I've talked to him about. In, like in the past, it's just like I'm really scared that when Major League Baseball reduces the draft, like it's supposed to be 20 rounds, but who and who knows what it's going to end up being. I was like, that's one of the biggest things I'm scared for right now is because he's a small he's a small school guy. So the chances of him going up in the high rounds is pretty low. So I just tell him, like, I mean, that's the, that's probably like the biggest thing I'm scared for for him personally. Yeah, and I think taking the, the positive out of that challenge as well is how heightened across the board college baseball will be now. There are the elite college baseball conferences. There are the SEC. Yeah. There, there's the talent rolling out every year of the, the Pac-12 and even the Big 12. But the you can now substitute basically Class A baseball with two or three years of high-level college baseball. Yeah. So you'll, you'll see a lot more guys going going to – two or four year schools to play baseball rather than say I'm going to take my chance at being one of the guys in the draft, whether I'm a content compensatory pick at the top or I'm picked in the 20th round. Uh, I, yeah, there are, like I mentioned, any number of players who have gone lower than the 20th round who have had successful prolonged major league careers. And now you're kind of cutting them out and, facing the idea that they may retire from the game or they may leave the game and never have that chance to grow and develop. So it's, it's a very scary thought, but it's really something that may not see the, the output or the result of for another four or five years. Yeah. I mean, another, another guy who is a late round guy who ended up becoming a very solid base uh, major league players, Kevin Kiermeyer, the center fielder mm-hmm. for, Tampa yep. Bay. I mean, he's a great guy. He, I mean, he has a lot of fans. He's a, a big fan um, getter for the Rays. And I mean, if it wasn't for, a, he was drafting the 39th round. So if it wasn't for the 40 rounds, you would have never had that guy in the majors. Yeah. But, yeah. It, it, like I said, it's a scary idea going ahead yes. in the next four or five years. The, the talent pool in an attempt to be heightened may actually be reduced in some spots. Yeah. Um, so let's get a little bit back into your career. You just signed with the Wilmington Sharks, correct? Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell me a little bit about that process of how you got that job while you're still working for Bur- Burlington and like some of the good, the, some of the things that you're looking forward to most? Yeah, I think the the biggest deal for me was getting back south. I, as I said, I graduated from Middle Tennessee State University, and it's Wilmington, North Carolina is not exactly next door to uh, to the middle Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, greater metro area, but it allows me to be a little bit closer to my family. And I'm at that point in my career where I'd like to continue in baseball, but also be closer to the people that mean the most to me. Yeah. And the biggest 
advice I can offer to anybody having job searched in sports for uh, more years than I can, I can count at this point has been to be tactful. I hated taking interview calls or scheduling interview calls on my work time with the team that I was working with. You have a lunch hour and that's what I always tried to schedule. If I knew I was going to be getting off early at a, on a particular day, I'd try to schedule an interview with somebody else at that time. So I was respecting my work time in my current position while I might've been seeking or somebody may have been seeking me out for another position, but I wanted to get closer to home, so to speak, get a little bit closer South and stay in the sports industry. If I could, the Wilmington opportunity came up, as I said, I kind of had a, a bit of a connection. I had never met my general manager before we interviewed, but he had previously worked with the general manager or the assistant general manager who had brought me in. So we had a little bit of a alert, secondhand connection, a loose connection and connected that way. Once I'd put my application in and I did that through teamwork online, just by funneling down through their search filters that I wanted to stay in baseball and working baseball. I wanted to work in this particular area or the States and do that. Um, that's something that you can do. I believe when you have more experience in your career, when you're able to market your skills and, and have proof of your skills and experience. But early on, you kind of still have to take the opportunities where they come. Yeah. I, I did not know what two months before I was graduating college that I would be picking up and moving to Greenville, Tennessee, in the northeast corner of the state. Then I didn't know that I would have five to six months off and I would be moving to Princeton, West Virginia. Um, you have to take those opportunities early on to be able to market yourself and, and benefit your career later on. And, uh, yeah. So that process was was great, and I was well-researched going into my interview for the AGM position in Wilmington and made sure that I knew where the general manager who was interviewing me, where he went to school, where he had previously worked in baseball, if we knew anybody else that we may have worked together with or crossed paths with. And then it was marketing my skills and marketing my experience. and not saying, okay, as a general manager, I did this. So if I come and work for you, this is how I want to do things. It was a give and take of learning about the organization and then adapting as the interview went and plugging in my skills and just putting, putting those solid little plugs in. Um, And not uh, as, as kind of the memeable moment go, for a used, sleazy used car salesman, not slapping the hood of the car and saying, this baby's yours, uh, whether you want it or not. It was saying, okay, have you thought of this? Or I'm interested in this part of the team's operations. I think I could contribute well there. So uh, yeah, I didn't think I, I had the job. I was kind of changing gears, focusing on my work in Burlington making sure my sales calls were out. I was still having a a positive output and and putting the work in planning as 
though I was going to be here for the 2021 season. And then the follow-up call came and they wanted me to have a conversation with the team's owners. And I, I complied with that. And we had a good conversation there as well. And I made sure I was, I was researched and um, didn't, didn't push things as they were just marketed myself. And I was my authentic and myself on the phone and they came back with the offer pretty quickly afterward. And I took a few days to accept it. And I can't like stress that enough. Some things you want to say yes instantly to take an hour or two, take a half a day, take a full day, sleep on it, figure out in your mind, or even if you have to chart it out on paper, figure out the pros and cons and how this is going to benefit you and how you're going to benefit wherever you are going. And uh, that's really what I did with this decision. I decided it was the best available position to me in baseball. I may not get another chance in my career to be at the C level, the executive level of a team and be able to build a brand or contribute to a well-established one like Wilmington is. So that's, uh, it was a little more arduous of a process than I would have liked, but it it really just depends on who you're interviewing with and the type of organization and their structure going in as well. Yeah. And then, um, so another thing that you just recently started was the um, American Ballpark Road Trip Road Trip Show. Yeah. Uh, so the, what motivated you to do that and what exactly is it? Well, um, it is, uh, the best I can phrase it, it is an in development uh i i'm a i'm a cinephile so i'm always watching movies but um and the term for for projects that are in pre-production or may not have been filmed yet or cast yet or anything is in development so it is a concept for an in development uh web-based likely youtube-based series where i would do a travel log based around going to different ballparks at different levels across the country. I was very fortunate in 2014 in my first internship to work in a ballpark that was very historic in Sedalia, Missouri. I mean, Satchel Page had played there when, when he was barnstorming with Negro League teams. Uh, the Bombers have been there for all the years of their existence, the local community college plays there as well as well, but it's this wooden band box. The only thing missing is the chicken wire backstop. And I got to work there for a summer, but I thought there are a lot of baseball people who would love to just go to a game to say they went to a game here because it's such a nostalgic experiment experience because it's not this big hulking structure of a ballpark like new ballparks are. So I wanted to do that and then highlight how cool that community was. They still have a drive-in. It's called Goody's Steak Burgers. Uh, they have like the they have the best milkshakes that I can remember tasting. And it's right up the road from the ballpark. They have this whole railroad history. And they have host families who take players in not knowing where they're coming from, not knowing really who they are before they get there. And... I wanted to create this show where I traveled ballpark to ballpark when I had time 
talked to the players and staff about what made this team different, what made this community click for this team and vice versa, and then showcase the actual ballpark and showcase the team and do kind of a Rick Steves travel log, but do it with a baseball niche. And there are a lot of things out there or a lot of content out there where people go ballpark to ballpark and they do reviews. I really enjoyed my seat or this is what the food's like. This is what I recommend. And that's like reading a restaurant review, but you're getting somebody's perspective. You're not able to see something objectively just presented to you. Uh, you know, you don't see an episode of Rick Steves travel logs where he completely critiques this French restaurant that he's at in uh, in Paris. You see him highlighting what's great about this place. So I wanted to do that for baseball. Um, yeah. The plan was to was to try to reach out to the Bombers and do that in Sedalia this summer if I was still going to be nearby or stayed away now the plan may change so i don't know where my particular pilot episode might be shot and when i'll have time to do it but still something i'm moving forward ahead with and uh, looking at you know patreon financing structures and how to give people perks and just creating some social media buzz uh the twitter for that is at am ballpark rt and I created the logo and branding and all that for it. So every few days I try to generate some content or I put a poll out or I put a call to action to potential fans to say, Hey, I'm traveling to this ballpark. You know, it's great when you're on the road, having a great baseball book. What do you guys recommend? Uh, or what's your favorite road trip snack? Just creating content and having a solid quality over putting out 50 videos a day saying the same exact thing. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, showcasing communities that you see, you can see a major league ballpark in one way or another every time you turn on a major league game on TV. But there aren't a lot of people out there marketing things like Liberty Park Stadium in Sedalia or places like that. Uh, there are people who are posting their road trips and and reviews, but nothing that really looks at things in this travel log or this objective journalistic lens. So that was the the whole concept for it. And hopefully something I can get off the ground in the next, next year or two as um, something to do, not even something to, to monetize, but something yeah. to, to put, put to paper, or put to video for people in the future to see maybe when a ballpark's been torn down or maybe when a team has moved somewhere else to know that, Five, 10, 15, 20 years ago, oh, I found this old video of this old YouTuber who went to this ballpark and this is what it was like. Uh, and that started with all the great ballpark experiences I had going on park to park, city to city road trips with my grandfather as a kid. I would, yeah. uh, I would plan the trip and figure out which teams we were seeing and the ticket prices and the times and he would take care of the driving until I was old enough to drive and take care of the hotel rooms. And then got to a point where the most recent trip was when I was out of baseball in 2018. And we had an amazing time because my own baseball career had delayed us going on those trips. And 
I was finally able to do it. And it got to this extreme level of, okay, we're going to this ballpark. I'm going to look on their team store. This is the hat I'm going to buy. So I can buy it as soon as we get there, check out their team store, and then we can experience the rest of the ballpark. Um, so yeah, it's a new concept. There's not a YouTube page up for it yet. There will be uh, the Twitter and the Facebook page, American Ballpark Road Trip or okay. AM Ballpark RT are the, the best places to kind of see the, the buzz I'm trying to generate for that going ahead. All right. So it'll be on YouTube for w- once you release it, listeners and followers can go on YouTube to watch these. Yeah, that's the plan right now. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I'm really looking forward to that. Like ballparks, that's always one one big thing that I've always liked to do. I've ever um, every city that I would go to, I'd always look to see what minor league teams are within like a 60 mile radius. Try to get my parents to go to a few games. I'm trying to go to all 30 major league parks. I'm at, I've been, I've been to 10 so far. We'll always like going and uh, I'll go onto the uh, stadium website, team website, check out if they're doing tours check out the clubhouses, check out um, like the um, underground facilities, all that stuff. I just, I love the, like just different ballparks, the architecture, all that type of stuff. Just like, it, it really gets me going. So like, I'm definitely looking forward to when you post that first episode and I'll be, I'll definitely be following that. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, like I said, with this job transition, I, I don't know when it's going to be done and I don't know exactly what the location will be now, but yeah. Um, yeah, it, I, it was something that I would like to to grow, not uh, not probably as a full time creator unless it became a necessity or an opportunity. But yeah, something to kind of do my service in my own unique way to baseball. All right, yeah, I mean, definitely looking forward to that. But then I got one last question for you before we go. Um, so one big thing that Major League Baseball is trying to do, Commissioner Rob Manfred, is attracting more fans in the younger generation, what do you feel are some good ideas or what are some ideas that you would have regarding attracting the younger generation to major league baseball or minor league baseball? Well, I have always been on board for Joe Torrey as commissioner of baseball. Um, just because I, I like him as a baseball guy and, and yeah. effectively ran the league, but um, no past my personal opinion of what, of, what about Theo Epstein? Uh, he may be making a play for it. He may be making a play as a team owner as well. Uh, I've, I've heard that as well. So you, you don't know. Um, and if labor strife happens after this season, there may not be as positive an outlook. The owners may decide to uh, make a changing of the guard. But in terms of growing the game, I think what, what I talked about earlier the greatest thing that major league baseball might have done is in creating a need or a necessity for baseball in smaller communities that they're no longer affiliated with through teams. So uh, that may be a big contributing factor that people or kids may go to the ballpark at a college summer league ballpark and say, I want to play there and not as much grow up wanting to, play at the major league level because uh, there's not as much access to it. Yeah. You, you can see game of the week stuff, but baseball has almost become this elite subscriber sport and, and driven fans. I won't say driven fans away completely, but made it more challenging for fans to, 
to find approachability or find their end to becoming a baseball fan. Yeah. Uh, Major League Baseball's community initiatives have always been great in the partnership with the Little League World Series and their relationship with Ripken Baseball and uh, the Chevy road tours that they would do with the, the Ripken brothers and, and their associated partners and bringing impacts to communities that may not have major leaguers coming to town every couple summers doing clinics for kids. So I think it's also regrowing local baseball. Uh, my, travel baseball produces some great players. There's some great structure to it, but I've always been a fan maybe because I was in the last generation from my town that played senior Babe Ruth level baseball. Uh, there were 17, 18 year olds still just who wanted to play baseball during the summer. They weren't, they were traveling five miles to the local ballpark in town. They weren't traveling 200 miles in a weekend play baseball so there's no lack of baseball in the u.s or abroad but i think there's a lack of a relationship between major league baseball and affiliated baseball to those smaller communities still and that's obviously that gap has been broadened by the restructuring of of the affiliated minor league baseball system, but there's not as much as initiative as I can tell anymore of major league baseball reaching out to these little towns. Um, I'm obviously reading a lot in the history into the seventies and eighties players would players and managers from big league teams would spend the off season going to, going to banquets or going to little regional local award ceremonies all across the country. And that was great because it brought a major leaguer to town, whether he was speaking to a rotary club in uh, greater Baltimore, Maryland, or he was going out to one of the suburbs, it was really distributing baseball. Um, you, I don't think there's a lot that you can do in terms of media rights and market blackouts and, things like that on radio and TV, because that's a major league controlled entity that makes money for them through advertising dollars. But I will say personally, I spend a lot more time looking up the scheduled dates for the free YouTube game of the week. Yeah. It may not be at the most convenient time, but it gives me a chance to see major league baseball. And I don't have to have a subscription to MLB network or Nesson, or the Yes Network. Uh, it lets me see baseball for free. Yeah. Um, so that's I think that's the greatest way to grow the game is providing baseball, providing yeah, so, an example, having so that you, out. Could you say like eliminating blackouts is kind of like a, another another way of saying that? In In an ideal world, yeah, every sports fan would love to be able to say there weren't media blackouts on their local team. But as somebody who's been in the sports industry, as somebody who's sold sponsorships to help produce income for a team, yeah, it's something you can't do away with because those millions of dollars in corporate sponsorships support the league and its operations, but it supports the team as well through profit sharing, through those 
those broadcasts and those right sharing efforts. So yeah, as a baseball fan, I can tell, I can tell you, I spend a lot more time. I'll look at the box scores for major league games still, but the only time I see it is if I'm out in public or if it's the game of the week or if it's the YouTube game of the week. Yeah. So um, what, so can you explain this to me real quick? So if someone subscribes to MLB TV, Let's say in my area, so Fort Wayne, so Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, we are currently blacked out of the Chicago Cubs, Chicago White Sox, Detroit, Cleveland, and then sometimes Cincinnati and Milwaukee. If a fan goes and buys MLB TV and subscribes to that, how come they are still blacked out when uh, those teams are playing? From my understanding, it has a lot to do with those local TV partnerships as well. Um I spent summers and and time break times in college at my grandparents' house in East Tennessee, where they had WGN, and every afternoon there's Chicago Cubs baseball on WGN because WGN is a local Chicago station. Yes. Uh, it was that way with TBS for a long time because Ted Turner not only owned the Atlanta Braves he owned Turner Broadcasting Superstation. So that's when the Braves became America's team in the 80s and 90s because they were on TV all the time. Now uh, that that relationship has changed, it's the team's ability to, it's the team and the league's ability to black out those markets and say, we want to drive people to spend money to subscribe to something that allows them the unlimited ability to watch our games, but they got to pay for it Yeah, because they're not spending money on a ticket. So we can also get their profit sharing subscriber money and we get ad revenue for selling this on our network or our part, our broadcast partner gets the money for selling that as well. So, um, I, I made a comment not too long ago that Iowa gets kind of shafted in that because it's you're not seeing the Cardinals, you're not seeing the Royals, you're not seeing either Chicago team, you're not seeing the the Twins or the Brewers either. So you're effectively blacked out from six or seven yeah. major league teams, and that state um, doesn't even have a team. Yeah, yeah, and um, so where people may not want to watch minor league baseball or college summer league baseball and they want to watch the Cardinals or they want to watch the Brewers or the Twins or the Cubs, whoever they have uh, that that fan relationship with, if they can't see it and they don't want to pay to see it at uh, at the set price, it turns them off baseball. But if they focus on baseball, they become a lot more casual, a lot less dedicated fan because they just – watch it when it's on when it's ESPN's game of the week yeah so yeah the blackout market deal it's just based on teams and their partners and wanting to maximize their their ad input and their profit and uh, I guess in a way test how dedicated fans really are to it yeah all right well I think that's all I got for you I really appreciate you coming on the podcast Um, yeah uh, maybe some, maybe sometime when I'm talking about either blackouts or just baseball contracts in general, maybe I'll have you on again. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate. Really, 
Yeah, really appreciate it. Um, is there any place that some of the listeners can follow you on Twitter, Instagram, wherever? Yeah, I'm uh, for my professional stuff and my professional portfolio stuff. It's probably LinkedIn is best, and it's Nicholas H. Carey. And my last name is C A R E Y. Uh, being around baseball, I get to do the the correction that my name is not spelled like Harry Carey's all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I can do a subpar Harry Carey impersonation based on Will Ferrell's SNL impersonation, but definitely different spellings on the name. So yeah, well, can we can we hear that real quick? Oh, um, it's right. challenging. Oh God, you put me on the spot. Thank you. I can't. I can't do it. Um, no. All right. Um, I did. I discovered discovered yesterday that uh, I can do. Uh, Mr. Burns from the Simpsons for whatever reason. So if I ever see somebody who looks like Wade Boggs or I see Wade Boggs, I can go, or not Wade Boggs, uh, Don Mattingly, I can go, Mattingly, shave those sideburns. Uh, like he does in the, that iconic Simpsons yeah. episode. But um, yeah, it's Nicholas H. Carey, C-A-R-E-Y on LinkedIn. My Twitter is Nick Carey, 1776. And, then, um, yeah, the, my personal website is nickhenrycarry.wordpress.com, and that has my personal writing, my personal fictional baseball league stuff, and a tab dedicated to the American Ballpark Road Trip. All right. Well, you have a great night, and I appreciate you coming on. And thank you again for listening to the JKR podcast today. Felt like it was a great conversation with Nick. Learned a lot of a lot of different things about the industry. Hope you guys enjoyed the content. And don't forget that this Friday we have Ryan Pip Ryan Pepio, Los Angeles Dodgers starting pitching prospect, coming onto the show. Learning learning a little bit about his career, his time at Butler, um, just some different things about him. We also have two more recordings next week with Justin Johnson. Um, he just opened up a new agency called J3 Sports. Then we interviewed Dre Jamison, used to pitch for Ball State, was drafted in the first round by the Arizona Diamondbacks, another starting pitching prospect. Then we have Tyler Alamo next two Fridays from now. He used to play in the Chicago Cubs system, now is working in the factory. And then the, um, next Monday we have Lucas Deck, another podcaster who's been getting into the real estate business. So should be a good rest of this month. All right, see you guys next week.